Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. The Lord has graciously given us another Sunday. He has seen us through a, another week, so I'm glad we could come together, sing the Lord's praises, be encouraged and edified as a family. My name's Pastor, well, my name's not Pastor. My name is Trevor, but I am the pastor here. I am glad you could join us, and those you join us online, welcome as well. Uh, before we begin this morning's message, let's go to our Father in Heaven in prayer. Holy Father, we come before you this morning in various states, some of us perhaps discouraged, some of us perhaps coming off of a great week. We ask that you would help us to hear your voice, that we would be content in your Son, that we would find true satisfaction in him, that we would be strengthened this morning as well as reminded from where our blessings come from, and where our strength comes from, and where our help comes from. So, Father, we ask that you would forgive us our sins, that you would forgive us our moments of pride, our moments of unbelief and weak faith, and that you would grant us wisdom this morning, that your Spirit would be gracious towards us as we seek your Word and as we hear your voice, and that you would fill us up, and that you would allow us to be equipped so that we can glorify you this week and this day, wherever you may lead us. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to pay attention, to be focused, not to be distracted by the cares, the worries, the pleasures, the delights of this life, but wholly focused on you and the truth, and that we may know that truth, and that we may know everlasting life. We ask these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever wondered what a life of salvation looks like? What does a life of salvation endure? What can it expect? How is it shaped? How is it marked? Our text this morning, Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, the author compares and contrasts the priesthood of Aaron and the priesthood of Christ. In doing so, we'll be given insight in regard to the kind of life one can expect to have if they expect to inherit eternal life. For one of these priesthoods leads to eternal salvation, and the other does not. So if you have not already opened up to Hebrews 5, please do so. It will be on the screen, but it's good to have it in front of you because we'll go to other verses as well but we will be continually referring to our main passage, so have it open in front of you so you, you yourself can make sure I'm not making it up as we go through it. So let's begin by looking at the first priesthood, which is mentioned in verses 1 through 4. Again, this is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorance and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So this first priesthood, this is the Levitical priesthood. And you'll note in verses 1 and 4 that the person, the high priest from, of the Levitical priesthood, he is appointed by God from men. This position is, is not a calling that's determined by men, it's a calling from God. Now, 
in the uh, time of Jesus, first century, by that time, the, the, the high priest, the chief priest that had become corrupted, Herod had, uh, King Herod had actually appointed the high priest. And so by that time, it was spoiled. But originally, the high priest was called by God. We see this in Exodus 28 and 29. You can read it on your own um, later. But we see there God calling Aaron and his sons. And thereafter, it was passed on uh, through the generations, starting with Aaron, and it was a position called from God. And God calls the priest from his own kind. That is, God calls a man to represent, to intercede, to mediate for men. It must be somebody who is a human. It can't be an angel. We've already seen the author talk about how the son is superior to the angels and in how the son needed to be man, in part because he is a priest, because the priest because he's offering sacrifice for them, has to be a representative on their behalf, because he acts on their behalf. And in doing so, he offers gifts and sacrifices for their sin to God. Now, the various gifts and offerings, if you want to know what kinds exist, uh, just read Leviticus. Many of you are familiar with Leviticus, because that's usually where you stop reading as you go through your Bible reading plan. You get to Leviticus, and you, and you stop. If you're familiar with Leviticus, it's where we get all the offerings, the burnt offerings, sin offering, grain offerings, fellowship offerings, thank offerings, restitution, peace offerings, and so forth. And by being one of them, the priest can deal gently with them, right? In verse 2, part of the benefit of being chosen from among them, the one that the priest is representing, he can deal gently towards the people, Now, that's different from how Jesus is described earlier in chapter 4 and verse 15. There it says Jesus is able to, he sympathizes with them. Here, it's a different Greek word, and it is to deal gently. And the reason he can deal gently with them, well, actually, let me back up. Note to whom the priest can deal gently with. It says he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. That is, those who honestly do not know any better and those who unintentionally drift into sin or maybe they are deceived into sin. However, note who's not listed. Those who sin willfully, deliberately. The priest can deal gently with those who by weakness sin, but by those, but those who by strength sin, he does not deal gently with. Nor, per the law, is he expected to deal gently with those who willfully, deliberately sin. Let me give you some examples of sins that are committed by strength or or willful sins. Ongoing, premarital or extramarital sex. Transitioning genders. Having an abortion. Neglecting the gathering of the church. Essentially, sins that wherever we have time, thoughts and energy in the matter where where those things are not lacking. We have had the time to think it through. We have have the energy to say no to it, to resist it. And, and, And we've given it enough thought. We know, we have knowledge that it is a sin, but yet we still do it. That's not a sin committed by weakness. That's a sin that's done willfully and committed out of a position of strength. Sins that are made by weakness are often sins committed due to ignorance, deception, or being under duress of various kinds. Just consider uh, some addictive sins that are fueled by hormones, or gluttonous sins that might be fueled by emotional trauma, or fatigue, or stress in life, 
or, or moments of quick anger, or even sins that we commit because we are lazy or we are poor planners, or sins that we just didn't know were sins. Now, none of those are excused by any means. It's why the priest offers up sacrifices for them. But it is to those kinds of sins, those kind of sinners, that the priest is able to deal gently with, or at least he is supposed to. And why can the Levitical priest deal gently with the wayward and ignorance? Because he himself is beset with weakness. He himself is a sinner who falls prey to the same weaknesses as the ones that he represents. So even he must offer a sacrifice for his own sin, not only for the people. We see this in Leviticus 9, verse 7. Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people. And bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as Yahweh has commanded. And then in regard to the day of atonement, we see this in Leviticus 16, 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. And in verse 15, then Aaron shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So that's the Levitical priesthood, a priest who is able to deal gently with the wayward and ignorant because he himself is beset with the same kind of weakness. And he himself has to offer sacrifice for his own sin as he represents uh, the people that he's also offering sacrifices for. But let us now consider the other priesthood. Now, though there are some similarities between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Christ, there are differences as well, key differences. So let's look at the rest of our passage, verses 5 through 10. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So here, we, the author now shifts the son being the priest. And we see that the priesthood of the son is similar to the Levitical priest. We see in verses 5 and 10 that the son, that his priesthood, he's a priest too, as appointed and as designated by God. Just as the Levitical priest was called by God, was chosen by God. But the son wasn't merely appointed and designated. He was exalted, right? He was elevated. He was crowned as well. The author, in verses 6 and 7, uses two Old Testament quotations to speak about the exaltation of the Son in regard to his priesthood. The first quotation we ought to be familiar with because we've talked about it already. This is Psalm 2, verse 7. And if you remember Psalm 2, Psalm 2 deals with the kingship of the Son. 
about how the son is king. It doesn't speak to the priesthood of the son. It, it pertains to, one, the resurrection of the son. That's specifically what verse 7 is about, right? We talked about that already earlier. It's that when he talks about, today I have begotten you, and he has taken on the name of son, that refers to the resurrection of Jesus after living a, a life of perfect obedience, taking on flesh, living a life of perfect obedience, going to the cross in obedience, dying the death and, and for, the, for his people to take away their sins, the Father exalts him in the resurrection, and he then ascends to the right hand of, to sit at the right hand of the Father. And that's what verse 7 talks about is the exaltation, which is uniquely, is explicitly, excuse me, connected to his kingship. But that makes the question, that begs the question, if we're talking about the priesthood, why is the author here using Psalm 2-7, which speaks about the kingship of Jesus? Why talk about something that speaks to the kingship of the Son? Well, this is where the second quotation comes into play. Psalm 110, verse 4. Now, we're already familiar with Psalm 110. We've seen verse 1 from Psalm 110 uh, twice already in Hebrews. And so now the author pulls uh, verse 4. But note the key phrase in this verse, and that is the order. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is the main contrast that the author speaks to here and throughout Hebrews. He, he will be with this argument, for the most part, through midway of chapter 10, about how the order of Melchizedek, the priesthood of Melchizedek, is far superior, is far greater than the Levitical priesthood. See, the old ways of the last age belong to the Levitical priesthood. Remember Hebrews, remember how he starts out the letter, Long ago, when God spoke to our fathers, he did so by the prophets. Now, in this age, in this last age, he speaks to us by his son. So, the old ways, the last age, belong to the Levitical priesthood, but the ways of today, this age, the priesthood belongs to Christ. And it's his priesthood that this age belongs to. So, what is the order of Melchizedek exactly? What does the author mean by this? Well, you're probably wondering, well, who is Melchizedek? Who even is this guy that the author is, is referencing? And that is, in part, a great, great mystery, but not a mystery to the intent of what the author means here. But let's talk about who Melchizedek is. He's mentioned twice in the Old Testament. You should, if you're familiar with Genesis, he comes into play in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. Abram, Abraham, right? But at the time in Genesis 14, he retains the name Abram. He hasn't gotten the new name Abraham yet. Abram has just gone out to battle. He comes back with the spoils, and he gives a tenth of the spoils that he won in battle to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Now, I have a fan theory that Melchizedek is actually Shem, and it's actually root Jewish tradition believes that Shem is Melchizedek. And if you remember Shem, Shem is one of Noah's three sons. Uh, he, he is portrayed in Genesis as the more faithful, the more righteous one. He would have been 100, uh, excuse me, Abraham would have been 140 years old when Shem died. So Shem was, he, he's Abraham's descendant, might have even had Abraham sit on his lap. Shem probably told him stories of pre-flood world and all that. So it's very possible that Shem is Melchizedek, and Melchizedek was a, a title, a name for the office that he was retaining. Just like when somebody becomes a king, they often change their name. 
Uh, like, for example, King Charles of England, he could have taken on a different name when he became king. It's tradition. Uh, and even in the ancient Near East, kings would do that. They would take on a, a historically or a ritual or, ritual or ritualistic name um, that would be tied to their kingship of, of their nation. So it's possible. But again, Scripture is very quiet on exactly who Melchizedek is is. Oh, also, Salem, which Melchizedek was keen of, Salem is part of the land that Shem inherited. So again, Melchizedek comes from the land that Shem was given responsibility over. However, Melchizedek is not mentioned. He's mentioned in Genesis 14, and he's not mentioned again until Psalm 110, verse 4. And that's it. Outside of Hebrews, Melchizedek's not mentioned, ever. We get shades of him, but he's never explicitly mentioned by name in Scripture outside of Genesis 14, Psalm 110.4, and a number of times in the letter of Hebrews. But to help us to understand the nature, that is the order of Melchizedek, let us look at Genesis 14, verse 18. There Moses writes, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. So Melchizedek was the king of Salem, and he was the priest of God Most High. He was the priest of Yahweh. In other words, he was a priest king, or a king priest, however you want to order it. And so is the son, Jesus Christ. This is why the author uses Psalm 2, verse 7, which speaks of the exaltation, the resurrection of the son that points to his kingship, and then he ties it immediately with Psalm 110, Verse 4, which speaks of his priesthood, but that is a Melchizedekian priesthood. That is, it is a priestly kingship or a kingly priesthood. So it's the same nature. It is the same order. When the author speaks of the order of Melchizedek, he's not explicitly stating that Jesus is a direct descendant of Melchizedek and that there's a line of people that we can trace connecting Jesus to Melchizedek. That's not what he's speaking about. He's talking about the nature of the priesthood, which makes him a true son of David. A true son of David would be a king and a priest. David himself, at times, took on priestly activities. As far as the Levitical law would allow him, David engaged in priestly activities while he was king. So after highlighting the type of priesthood that the son possesses, the author in verses 7 and 8 speaks to how Jesus relates to those whom he was called by God to represent, just as he did with the Levitical priest. So we can see the compare and contrast here. In verse 7, the author says, in the day of his flesh. Now that means in his earthly life, when in his ministry before he was crucified, this is what he offered. And note, he didn't offer the same thing as the Levites did, as the Levitical priests. And that makes sense, because he wasn't a Levite. In order to offer what the Levitical priests offer, you had to be a Levite, and Jesus was not a Levite. But he still offered something, and what he offered is what we need and what is ultimately important. Prayers and supplication. Prayers and requests and needs. And he did so in a very specific way, with tears and loud cries. In other words, Jesus offered up these prayers through suffering. Now, when we read this, especially, you know, looking back on time and history, being familiar with Jesus and the story, 
<clears throat> we're probably thinking, well, this sounds like the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, right? He's in the garden. He, he, he's praying so hard. Blood and, and sweat are, are, are coming out of him because he, he knows what is before him. And certainly the author is probably referencing that, but the author isn't only referencing the garden. He's referencing, he's using this to speak to the whole life of Jesus. The whole life of Jesus was marked with suffering, it was marked with reverence, and it was marked with Jesus offering up prayers and supplications, which, yes, was climax in, in the garden and even on the cross, but his whole life was marked with faithful cries. And he, in his prayers were heard. And he was, his request, as the author talks about here, was to be saved from death. But in verse 7, when the author says, well, his prayers were heard because of his reverence, well, didn't Jesus die? He's offering up these prayers to the one who's able to save him from death, and his prayers were heard because of his reverence. Well, didn't he just die on the cross? I mean, and, and the, we're look, thinking about his prayer in the garden, he, he asks that the Father would do his will, right? Whatever it may be. But if, if he was seeking to be delivered from death less than 24 hours later, his body's cold in a tomb. So what does the author mean? That God was able to deliver him from death when he died? Well, he did die. But again, remember the resurrection. He didn't remain dead. He was delivered from death. Hades, death, did not keep him, did not hold on to him. So he was ultimately Delivered, the Father exalted him by resurrecting the Son. As Paul points out in Colossians 1.18, he talks about how he might be the firstborn from the dead and in everything preeminent. So the death, the crucifixion, and then the resurrection, the resurrection is what makes the Son first. It's what makes him preeminent. It's what makes him superior. It's what gives him the name, the Son. But why was he heard? Certainly must be because he's the son, right? I mean, he's the son. Why wouldn't a father listen to the son? Yes, son, whatever you say, I'm going to hear you. But that's not what the author says. The author doesn't say Jesus was heard because he was the son. In fact, he anticipates us thinking that. He says, although he was a son, he learned obedience. See, he was heard because of his reverence not simply because he was a son. Now, because of he was a son, he was the son, he learned obedience, which means he was reverent, and that is why he, his prayers were heard. But let us talk about this phrase that the author uses. He learned obedience in verse 8. If the son had to learn obedience, does that mean at one point he was not obedient? If somebody learns obedience, is, is it logical to think, well, a moment before, they weren't obedient, but they have learned to be obedient. Now, certainly in our case, that can be true. But in the case of the son, that is not true. Consider Hebrews 2.17, where it talks about how Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest. Was Jesus not merciful? Was he not faithful prior to becoming a merciful and faithful high priest? No, of course not. He certainly was, but yet he still became those things. So what is meant here by that the son learned obedience? When the author speaks of the son learning obedience, he speaks to the son's experience of learning to trust God through suffering and hardship in humanity. See, the son does not sin. 
nor did he ever not trust the Father. He always has, and he, and he never walked in sin. But he had at times yet to experience what it means to be obedient in doing so. It is one thing to know something, it is another thing to do it. For example, a, a child at the edge of a pool with a parent in front of them saying, jump. The child trusts the parent, but it's nothing for that child to actually jump and have that parent catch them. There's a learning that happens there. Or another jumping illustration, you can go to airborne school, you can learn how to jump out of airplanes the first two weeks, know everything there is about it, but until you actually jump out of the airplane, you haven't really learned to jump out of an airplane. One commentator puts it this way, the son learned how to obey in the anvil of human experience as he experienced life day by day. So again, this learning is tied uniquely to the humanity of Christ. Just as Luke says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, he, is, he still has the full array of the human experience. And in that, he is faithful, he is trusting, and he learns obedience, and he does so through suffering or with suffering in verse 8. This is the means by which the Son is able to relate to us whom he was designated by God to represent, to mediate for. See, whereas the Levitical priest, Aaron and his sons and his, his uh, descendants, their relation was connected by the shared sin and weakness. Here for Jesus, he relates to us by the suffering that he endured. That is, as we talked about in Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted as we are in every way, yet he did not sin. It is why he can sympathize with us, and in doing so, he is the priest that we need in our time of need. And he is the kind that we need. We need one who can not only relate with us, but one who has not lost. Right? We don't need a, a, a loser to help us in our sin. We need one who has been tempted as we are in every way, in every fashion, in every respect, but yet has not lost, but has been victorious and has overcome in every way. Because we need to know that when we are beset with weakness, we can overcome it. And if we look to somebody who is also beset with weakness, who has not overcome, who does fail like we do, what hope is there? But when we look to the one who is tempted as we are in every way, and yet in every way overcomes that weakness, and every way does not sin, then we have a hope. We have an example. We have somebody we can imitate. We have promise. We have good news. So he, that is why he is the priest that we need. See, he is not a priest that must deal with his own sin. Rather, having been made perfect, verse 9, he has become the source of eternal salvation. And as Hebrews 2.10 tells us, that perfection came by suffering. It came through suffering. And as such, as verse 9 puts it, he became the source of eternal salvation. Again, this is similar to what the author wrote in Hebrews 2.10. In Hebrews 2.10, Jesus, our high priest, is referred to as the, the founder, the originator of our salvation. Here in verse 9, the Greek word is more related to the cause and the reason, the office or the position of salvation. But the point remains, this great high priest, Jesus the Son, 
He is the only means of eternal salvation. There is no other way to enter into the kingdom. There's no other way to be saved outside of Christ. So if he is the source of eternal salvation, and if we are to inherit eternal salvation from him, then what must we do? What must we concern our lives with? What should we expect? Well, first we need to ask the question, to whom is Jesus the source of eternal salvation? Is it to anyone? Is it to anyone who just loves enough or does enough good works or just have faith, regardless of what they have faith in? Can they just believe in Allah as long as it's in good faith? Well, the author makes it clear in verse 9. Eternal salvation is for a specific group. It is those who obey. Now, again, this isn't about salvation by works. We've talked about this numerous times already. The author here is writing to people who already profess saving faith. He's not writing to people who, who don't believe. This is an evangelistic letter. He is writing to those who believe in the Son, people who trust in the Lord Jesus, people who supposedly claim what he has done on the cross is enough and it is finished. So what he's doing here is reminding them, stay faithful to that confession. Stay faithful to your profession. Remember the need to persevere and remain faithful to the end. Because right now they're being tempted. They're being wayward. They're being led astray. They're being tempted to forsake the way of Christ for another way, specifically the way of the, the Levitical priesthood. And the Levitical priesthood belongs to the old way, to the old age, the last age, not this age. And salvation isn't found through the Levitical priesthood, so they forsake the priesthood of Christ, the order of Melchizedek, well, then they forsake salvation. This very concern is where the author goes in the coming weeks when we get to our third warning in Hebrews. And we'll talk about the warning in, in Hebrews, but we'll split it, I think, in two or, or three weeks. But for now, let us consider what does it look like to obey Christ? What does, it, what does a life that seeks to obey Christ to find salvation, to inherit salvation, what does that look like? Well, we only have to look to the Son to understand this. Consider what obedience looked like for the Son. If you had to live a life perfectly in accordance to the will of the Father, among people, among God's people, who should have recognized the will of the Father, if you were to live a life in perfect obedience, what kind of life should you expect? Because that was the life that Jesus had. He had a life of perfect obedience. He lived among God's people, among the Jews. The Jews claim to know Yahweh. They claim to know the scriptures. And so God sends his son, and he lived perfectly, faithfully towards him. So shouldn't his life be full of rainbows and butterflies and roses? Shouldn't he be welcomed and, and, and glorified? But he wasn't, was he? What was his life marked with? Suffering death because of that obedience by the people who should have known better likewise why should we expect anything different why do we why is there such a a popularity in america for this health wealth and prosperity gospel that look if you have good faith if you love people as jesus loved them they'll love you right back they will welcome you with open arms they will they will appreciate you 
and God's going to reward you with wealth and cancer is not going to touch you. It's going to heal. You're going to be healed. You just need to walk in perfect obedience and good faith. No suffering. It, that's, that's for sinners. That's for those who are unfaithful. Well, what does that say about the son? Why do we think that we can have a life full of indulgences and pleasures, a life of ease in this world? Now, prosperity may befall some of us externally by God's grace. Right? Externally, some of us and some of you are blessed with wealth, with success. People hold you in high regard. People like you. Some of you, it's, it's not that way. But internally, for all of us, regardless of our external circumstances, internally for all of us, there is a struggle if we are faithful, if we are obedient. There is a daily suffering that goes on. Regardless of what your external circumstances look like, this world, your job might not hate you, they might love you in spite of your faith and all that, but inside, for each and every one of us, if we are faithful, if we seek to obey Christ, there's a daily suffering that goes on. Or as Paul puts it, a daily crucifixion. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. That's not just some like flippant word. Paul isn't using that word without regard for what it means, for what it represents. Paul suffered for Christ. He knows what it means. He knows what a crucifixion is. He has seen crucifixions. He, he knows Peter gets crucified. Paul gets his head cut off. So he knows what he, he means when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it means what he says following it. It's no, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Later, Galatians 5, verse 24, Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus, so now he's not talking about himself, in case you're wondering, well, Paul's just a high example. Well, Paul applies this to everyone. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Think of what Jesus went through in his crucifixion, because that's the picture here. The suffering, the pain that he went through, and he did so willfully, Right? Jesus wasn't crucified against his will. That was a willful suffering. He willfully was crucified. Likewise, we, who belong to Christ, crucify our own flesh. We scourge it. We, 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 do, we mutilate it. We do what is necessary to make it dead. Because it's no longer we who live, but it is Christ who lives. We crucify our passions and our desires. Day in and day out, when we wake up, our passions and desires, the ones that seek us to walk outside the will of God, we crucify them. Paul, Romans 6, 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So if our Lord and Savior learned through suffering what it meant to obey the Father and trust the Father, well, why shouldn't we? What makes us better than our Master, our Teacher, our Lord and Savior? If the world, if God's people rejected His Son, who spoke perfect truth and did so graciously and did so with the perfect tone, we can't go to Jesus and say, well, he didn't, he didn't use the right tone. 
He's the son of God. He used the right tone. And if he was treated that way, why would we expect anything less? And why would we expect in our own struggle of sin not to suffer? So the questions for us are, are you willing to suffer to learn? Do you, with loud cries and tears, do you pray so that you may know Christ? To, I think of that sim, all that I hold dear, right? Knowing you, all that I hold dear, I count laws, I'm willing to enter into your sufferings, to know you in your sufferings. That, is, that should be our desire, to know Christ. And you can't know Christ apart from his sufferings. Paul and Peter both talk about it. I don't have the verses, but they both talk about it. You must share in the sufferings of Christ if you want to inherit salvation. So do you suffer to know his word? Right? Again, the external circumstances for us are going to vary. Some of you may suffer externally for your faith. Others of you may not. And God may bless you with good things, and he may not bless others with good things. But internally, we all suffer if we're seeking to obey because we're crucifying the flesh. So do you suffer to know his word? Do you suffer to get up that hour in the morning or to go to bed earlier so you can't get up earlier? Do you suffer? And this is, this is real petty, right? I get it. But do you suffer to not watch two episodes of your favorite show because it keeps you up late? I mean, but these are, this, this is how spoiled we are in the American church. We don't read God's word because, oh, I don't like to read. It's so hard. It's, it's boring at times. It's dry. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. Crucify the flesh, right? Put it to death. It's, it's a small thing God's asking you. Small thing. Do you suffer to love your spouse, to love your children? Or do you take a form of entitlement from time to time and go, no, I'm done with this. I deserve this. I need this. I've worked hard for this. Or do you die to self and go, no, I'm going I'm to die again for the sake of my wife, the sake of my husband, the sake of my children. Why? Because Christ did the same for me. Does this, he did it for the church. Think of all that he put up with. Yeah, he did it. And that's the love that we're called to have. Do you suffer to love the bride of Christ? I can't, I can't stand loving those people. Some of them are annoying. Some of them are awkward. Some of them just, I just think they talk too much, or some of them don't, I talk a lot, they don't talk enough, or they have this view, I have this view, or that one person said that one thing to me that one time, just can't get over it. But you're called to love the bride of Christ. Or I don't like how they have the lights on in the sanctuary, I don't like how the time of the service, or, or I don't like the, the, the chairs or the rundown carpet, whatever it may be. Do you suffer to love the people of Christ? Do you suffer to have self-control over your flesh? And all things, not just the obvious sins like lust, but do you suffer to control your, all your appetites, how you spend your time, what you eat, what you look at, what you engage in? Do you suffer to take captive every thought and make it obedient unto Christ? Essentially, do you seek to be the living sacrifice of Romans 12.1? Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice. When he says bodies, he's talking about your soul and your flesh, right? We must not look at our flesh and go, well, I have no need for this in heaven. I'm going to get a new body anywhere. We're called to control our physical bodies here because it impacts the state of our soul. So he goes on and says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice or as a walking sacrifice. That is, as you live your life, you are dying to self regularly. Not just when you wake up in the morning, but as you go about your business, you are regularly giving things up because it is holy, it is acceptable to God, and that is your spiritual worship. That is how you worship God. If you want definition of worship, it's, it's there. It's Romans 12.1. Be a living sacrifice in faith. Learn to be obedient through suffering. Christ is that picture. He is that example. Do you strive to put off the old self and put on the new, as Paul calls us to in Ephesians 4? And in the midst of all this, do you trust that the work and suffering that you engage in on a daily and regular basis, that you do so out of obedience, do you trust that that is a work of God? And that's key. This isn't your work. This isn't you doing it. It is God doing it in you and through you. He is the power. He is the source. Jesus is the source of our salvation. He is the founder of it, and he sends his spirits to complete that work. Right? Philippians 2, 12, 13. I don't have it up there, right? Work out your salvation, fear of trembling. Why? Because it's God who has started the work in you, and he will see it through. We just have to submit to him. We just have to pray sometimes with loud cries and sometimes with tears, that he would continue that faithful work even when we are unfaithful. So if you struggle, and this is the whole point that the author is talking about, remember you have a high priest who's able to sympathize with you, a high priest who knows what you're going through. He understands the temptation because he himself was tempted, but he also understands what it takes what is necessary to overcome that temptation. That is why when you're faced with temptation, you need to remember there's no temptation facing you that hasn't been faced by others, and God will give you a door out. He will give you a way out because he knows the cure. He knows the way out for that temptation. So trust him. Give him prayers just as Jesus prayed. He will hear you if you seek obedience, if you seek faithfulness. And remember, as, as Jesus told his disciples before he left, I will be with you always, forever to when? The end of this age. So he is with us. Wherever we end up, wherever we go, he will be with you. Whatever struggles come your way, he is with you. Do not forget that. So go to him. Go to the throne of grace, as we talked about last week. And draw near and stay near. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for once again speaking to us this week. We ask that you would allow the spirits to convict and cut us as necessary for our good. We ask that you would deliver us from temptation, that when we enter into moments of temptation, that we would be faithful, that we would seek obedience, that we would seek holiness and righteousness, that we would not 
succumb to it, but that we would look to your Son, that we would seek power from the Spirit, and that we would walk through the door that you open up for us to escape such temptation. We ask that you'd grant us wisdom so that we don't become wayward or ignorant, that you would grant us wisdom to recognize slippery slopes or any snares or any triggers that may exist in our life. We ask that you would help us to persevere, that you would give us your word, that you would give us an appetite for your word, that you would help us to discipline ourselves, to recondition ourselves, to become readers again, or to become at least hearers of your word if it's through an, um, an audio Bible or whatever it may be. But help us to drink of it, to have the desire for it. Many of us struggle with the discipline to do so. We, we give in to, to petty things. We, we're tired, we're, we're lazy, we, we don't prioritize our time right. But Father, we thank you that you are, are gracious towards us, despite all of that. We thank you that despite our weakness, despite our sin, you, you're still faithful to us, and your Son is still interceding for us, and so is your Spirit, and we rest in that, Father. We, we fall into your hands, seeking mercy, and we also seek help. And Father, you know the help that each person here in this room needs, and those who are listening online, you know what help they need. Bless us with that help. We ask this, Father, so that we would know your Son more, so that we would be able to proclaim the good news more effectively, that we can rejoice over his name, and that we can make the name of your Son known to all, and that your kingdom can, can advance, that the church can be built, and that ultimately you would be glorified into the ages. Father, in doing so, we ask that you'd bless the elements before us, the, the bread and the cup. You, we ask that the Spirit would help us to become aware of the sins that we might be guilty of, that we would confess our sins, that we would seek reconciliation not only with you, but with our brothers and sisters in Christ whom we might have offended. But Father, after doing so, give us confidence knowing that the work on the cross is finished, it is done, that we can come on up, we can rejoice knowing that we have been forgiven, we are forgiven, we will be forgiven, and we sin again, and we confess, and we repent. We know that there's help for repentance. So may the elements this morning just encourage us and remind us throughout the week as we taste the goodness of the gospel. We ask this, Father, so that we can, again, glorify you in all that we do. We ask all these things, Father, for your holy name, by the power of your Holy Spirit, and by the blood and the name of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.